This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. J.J. French, my guest, guitarist with Twisted Sister, and they will be reuniting for, I believe it's two days and nights uh, later this month to celebrate the 35th anniversary of the band's classic album, Stay Hungry. And uh, that's happening at the uh, the Spooky Empire. That's a horror-themed convention center in Tampa, Florida. It's uh, an exclusive one-time only gathering. Now, you're not going to be playing, Jay, right? You're just going to be there and doing Q&A and, and signing? Uh, Q&A. Uh, it's a meet and greet to see the fans. It'll be the me, Dee, Eddie, and Mendoza will be together. Uh, we don't get together very often because we're all scattered all over the planet. But we will get together and sign autographs. But no, we are not playing. By the way, Richard, I, can I, I want yes. a quick comment about your last guest at his, at his statement about the voting inequity issue. Yes. Um, so my mother worked for John Kennedy. Um, in 1960, as well as many other politicians, um, national and local, in the 60s. And my mother and I was eight years old when Kennedy was elected. And my mother told me shortly after the election that the election was rigged. And and over the years, we found out the election was rigged. Um, Richard Daly in Chicago threw voting machines right. in, the river, in the river. I mean, this is kind of well known. This isn't necessarily yeah, Sam me. Giancana. Yes, right. And this is not me uh, espousing some sort of wacky stuff that nobody knows about. This is kind of known between Lyndon Johnson and and the corrupt way he ran the uh, Texas uh, uh, political machine, and Richard Daly, whose whose favorite quote was, when, "You know, vote early and often." You know, that was that's I, right. I believe that's his favorite <laughs> quote. Um, the, the vote was rigged, and Nixon was told that the vote was stolen, that the election was stolen from him. From what I understand, he was told, and and he was asked what he wanted to do about it. And he felt that it wasn't good for the country. He didn't want to destabilize. Imagine speaking well of Richard Nixon uh, in light of what we have to deal with right now. Uh, we right, actually right. look fondly at that son of a bitch. Anyway, um, so, so speaking fondly of, of, of Tricky Dicky, he uh, he took the high road and said, "I don't want to uh, create a constitutional crisis." From what I've read, I, I understand that. From what I've read, so that speaks directly to what your friend uh, was talking about. Now, I'm not going to get into the deep state and the manipulation of computerized voting, but yes, a lot of tricky stuff um, has gone on. And well, also, as I told you, Richard, uh, when I emailed you, that one of the greatest uh, Kennedy conspiracy specialists is Robert Morningstar. And yes. Robert Morningstar happens to be the brother of uh, of uh, two guys that used to play in bands with me, in, in, uh, ah. from New York City, well, and from my neighborhood. And I've known Robert Morningstar. Uh, I won't expose his real name on radio because he wouldn't appreciate it. But uh, but I've known him for for fifty years. 
just well, regular two. listeners to for regular listeners to coast to coast AM will be very familiar with Robert. He's a he's a, a not a fixture, but he's certainly a, a regular on uh, on coast to coast. Since you mentioned voter registration, I just wanted to bring up uh, James Cheney because this is kind of an interesting. Uh, story, very interesting story. Uh, first of all, you attended something called the Shaker Village Summer Program. Uh, explain what that was back in uh, the summer of the summer of love in '67, and then how you became a bunkmate of the brother of James Cheney, who, of course, was one of the three uh, young men murdered, right. civil rights workers murdered during this voter registration drive in in Mississippi. Well, I was. Um you know, I was a kid growing up in New York City, a Jewish kid in New York City, and 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 because of that scene, that uh, that the, the the scene of of uh, I don't know how else to put it, uh, in, an intellectual uh, um, group of of Jewish kids and their parents who, uh, you know, I think these parents, the, our parents, were super left wing, and many of them had been communists in the forties and fifties. And um, and then eventually left the Communist Party um, after Stalin in, in, invaded Hungary and anyway became became Democrats you know and 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 I grew up in in this world and no one sat me down like Rosemary's baby and said you are a red diaper baby but what happened was I would go to these camps uh, they they were called red diaper baby camps it was a camps that that basically i uh, had tons of these kids most of them were jewish most of them's parents uh, were super left wing and shaker village work group um, uh, in the in the actual location of the the shakers for those of you who don't know the quakers there's the quakers right there's the pennsylvania dutch quakers then there's the shaking quakers they're even more <laughs> kind of radical and they shook while they were praying and they became known as the shakers and the shakers had um had had uh, villages and locations around around new england and so one of their areas which today i think is still is now back to being a shaker village um uh uh, uh what is it like, like um like a tourist it's like it's a, i think it's it's a, not a tourist trap necessarily but it, but it's still evocative of the the shaker village uh ethos of 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 constructing buildings and how they lived you know like like um right right you know that kind of a thing um like the amish kind of a thing i mean and i don't know if there's any quakers left but the shaker village location still there in pittsfield massachusetts i was in shaker village in the summer of 67 um and which was not unusual to me, and my bunkmate was was Ben Cheney, and Ben Cheney's brother James was one of the three civil rights workers who was murdered. Now, uh, so while that sounds sociologically intense, it wasn't particularly unusual at the time. I mean, frankly, my um, my first guitar teacher was a guy named Mike Mirapol at another camp called Camp Thoreau, and and and. Uh, Camp Thoreau was another one of these camps that were kind of left-wing leaning, and my guitar teacher was Mike Mirapol. Mike Mirapol was the son of Julius Nethel Rosenberg, who were executed uh -huh. for right, you know, sharing right. the other bombings. And then, well, and make things even more interesting, my mother uh, was the campaign manager for many politicians, and including, by the way, she's the le she she was she got Jerry Nadler pretty much started off. Who's you know the head of the Judiciary Committee today? She was one of his. Uh, Protégé. He was one of her proteges back 
in the in the sixties. But um, my mother worked for Constance Baker Motley. For those of you who don't know who she is, she's the first black woman to uh, ever be elected to the New York State Senate, representing Harlem in 1964. Um, she represented um, uh, uh, the um, um, the gentleman from the University of Mississippi who uh, who was who was blackballed uh, from the University of Mississippi, and John Kennedy had to um, had to bring the National Guard in to have him escorted into right. university. So right. he so she represented him and. Uh, because of that, when uh, my mother worked for uh, Constance Baker Molly's election, we we uh, we uh, picked him up at the at, in New York City and brought him up to Harlem. So um, I have been wrapped up in politics most of most given, of my life. Give, given that that lineage, and uh, I think you, you said once that the first concert you ever went to were the Weavers <laughs> at Carnegie yeah. Hall. Why didn't yeah. you end up being a folky? Well, because I missed that by because I was too young. So my brother was a folky. Mm. My brother was ten years older than me. So yes, he took me out of the village, and he would play at the Fat Black Pussycat, and he would play at Hoot Nannies. You know, they were called Hoot Nannies back then. And right. so, so that was big. But you know, I was fifteen when Sergeant Pepper came out, so I was the perfect bullseye for the hippie generation. So right, when I was right. fifteen, it was the great. I mean, think about the albums that came out in nineteen sixty-seven. Cream's Disraeli Gears, uh, Ginger Baker, Rest mm. in Peace, Grateful Dead's debut album, Jimi Hendrix's debut album, Janis Joplin's debut album, Jefferson Airplane's debut album, The Beatles, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, The Rolling Stones, Satanic Majesty's Request, Buffalo Springfield, Quicksilver Messenger Service. I mean, think about the unbelievable level of artistry that right. came out in 67, and that was a perfect age for me. Things kind of exploded uh, for me, and I was swallowed up into that. And plus, Richard, I was living in New York City. What did that mean? Well, New York City, when you live in Manhattan, you're only a 10-minute train ride from the Fillmore East. And who was at the Fillmore East? The Grateful Dead. Everybody. Hendrix, <laughs> Zeppelin. Everybody. Right. And how much did it right. cost to see these bands? $3. So you could oh, see gosh. Led Zeppelin four times in a weekend, early and late show for 12 bucks. Uh, you could see Jimi Hendrix for 12 bucks four times. You could see The Grateful Dead. You could see Jeff Beck. You could see Rod Stewart. You could see Country Joe and the Fish. You could see Janis Joplin. So I had this luxury. And by the way, if you couldn't afford the $3, you could see them for a dollar because they all play the Schaefer Festival in Central Park. And if you couldn't uh-huh. afford the dollar, you just hung outside because it was so loud, it didn't really matter. So right, I right. was at the right place at the right time with all the right people. By the way, the gentleman whose name escaped me for, uh, temporarily was James Meredith, who was the first African-American ah, yes. to get into the University of Mississippi. And my mother hired, and my mother uh, brought him up uh, to Harlem to campaign for Constance Baker Motley. So I was at these, at these locations at the right time, at the right place. I was 15, 16, and then when I was 17 years old, um, I was... You know, I was getting stoned a lot. I was playing in a lot of bands. I was an anti-war activist. I was a civil rights activist. And I got thrown out of my high school for handing out an underground newspaper. Um, didn't and I you, sued, didn't uh, you uh, quit high school like 
a couple of weeks before your graduation be- oh. you, to protest what happened to Kent State? Yeah, well, I sued the Board of Education for violating my constitutional rights, and we settled the case, and they, and uh, I wanted to go to a different high school, and they moved me to George Washington High School in, in, the, in Washington Heights. By the way, it's a public school, but I'll have you know that Henry Kissinger graduated from there, as did, hmm. Tiny, as did Tiny Tim, as did Golda Meir crazy group of people. Um, uh, and I went there and met Eddie Ojeda. But yes, with uh, two months to go in my senior year on May 4th, 1970, um, I was living with a, I had met a girl in Bermuda the summer before 969, who was the great granddaughter of Robert E. Lee. Her name was Gail Hornifer. And she was from Atlanta. And she was a year older than me. And you know, she took my breath away. Because she said to me, you make a girl's heart flutter like a bird's wing. And that really is toxic <laughs> to tell a New York Jewish kid, let me tell you. So uh, I went and lived with her for a couple of days down in Richmond, Virginia, and lo and behold, that was the week that the Kent State kids were killed. And Richard, I, I don't know how old you are, so um, I'm assuming you were not born yet at this point. Um, and that, uh, yes, I was. Actually. Okay. I was... Yeah. You were two years old. But, uh, six, six oh, actually. Six, okay. So the Kent State kids, so what happened when Kent State uh, the kids were shot in Kent State was there were riots all over the United States. Every college basically was burning. And, uh, and I made, I came home and told my mother, I'm done with the man. Screw the man. I'm going to be a rock star. That was my quote. I said, I'm going to be a rock star. And she said, what? And I'm thinking to myself, oh boy, you just put your foot in your mouth. Like, what does that mean? But I proclaimed to her that I was going to, and I, and I did drop out of high school with two months to go. All right, we'll take another time out. We'll come back and uh, continue uh, to talk all things rock and roll and much more with J.J. French, co-founder, guitarist of Twisted Sister. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. I'm Richard Serrett. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. J.J. French stays with us. I should point out that uh, when the uh, the four surviving members of Twisted Sister get back together later this month for an exclusive, uh, they're not performing, uh, D. Snyder, J.J. French, Eddie Oida, and Mark the Animal Mendoza. Again, this will be at the Spooky Empire Horror-themed convention in Tampa, Florida. And uh, there's going to be a limited edition Twisted Sister commemorative Stay Hungry 35th anniversary coin that'll be available at the show. How cool is that? Uh, JJ, I wanted to just talk to you about, um, you tried out for, it wasn't called Kiss uh, back in the early 70s. I think it was called Wicked Lester or something. But you tried out for the band, right? Yeah, uh, so did a lot of people. And so much was made of it. And it was one of the crazier, sillier stories. But um, no, I never was in Kiss. But I was a one of many people that auditioned for Wicked Lester through a, uh, it's strange, strangely enough, an attorney in my building who I used to babysit for shows you how small this world is. He represented a producer named Ron Johnson. That producer produced Wicked Lester. And in an elevator conversation with this guy, he said that his client uh, was looking for a guitar player for this band called Wicked Lester. And so he gave me Gene's number and I called him and, and uh, it was in June of 72. And um, they wanted to see me play. So they, Gene and um, Paul, 
came down to a church on uh, 12th Street and 6th Avenue, and I was playing in a band called Scout at the time. And the drummer for Scout, Don Perry, went on to play with Jethro Tull for many years. And anyway, we're all 20-year-old kids, and Gene and Paul came down and um, introduced themselves to me. And, uh, and um, you know, they said they were in this band called Wicked Lester, and they gave, me a, they gave me a reel-to-reel tape of the album, and the album sounded pretty lame. I mean, it was um, it sounded like the band Looking Glass. If you remember a song, Brandy, you're a fan. Yes, Looking Glass, sure. What it, yes. So that's what, that's what it sounded like. You know, it sounded like Looking Glass. And they said, disregard this, it's kind of lame, we're going to get heavy. And they asked me if I heard of a band called Slade, and mind you, this was three months before I became Mr. Glitter Guy, so I was still in my kind of Allman Brothers Grateful Dead mentality. And I, and they said we're going to wear you know platform shoes and uh, and we're going to like get a little weird and it's going to be like English uh, Marshall amplifiers. Most American bands didn't play through Marshalls at the time, and um, I was trying to grasp their idea. And I uh, and I played with them for about two weeks and it didn't work out. However, flash forward to. The following September, they were still advertising, and I looked up and I, I called another number in the paper, and it was Gene. He said, "No, no, we got a guy. He's great. His name is Paul Fraley. He's really great. And when he's rehearsed enough, you can come down and and hear us." So I did. I actually went down about a, a maybe within a, a month after that phone call. They invited me to the loft, and I watched them play their first album, basically as Kiss. Just in t-shirts and jeans, and they had just learned. They had just, Ace had just spelled the name Kiss. It was on a bedsheet behind Peter, and it was up <laughs> on uh, the wall or something behind them. And they and they were kissified. I mean, they had no makeup on yet, but they were phenomenal. And Ace was great, and I wasn't as good as him at the time. They made the right choice. They got the right guy. They really did get the right guy. I never have regretted it ever. Um, um, uh, but yeah, and so I respected their vision. You know, they they were clear. Gene knew exactly what he wanted to do. Like, really knew what he wanted to do. And it became apparent. Um, I saw them in 1976 at Nassau Coliseum. So now we're talking three years later. And uh, right. it was one of the best shows I'd ever seen. They were fantastic. Let me, uh, let me get your take on a few things here while time permits. And one, I, I, D. Snyder has been pretty vocal. And I think I'm, I'm not sure if you've weighed in on this conversation as well. And that is what's going on with that, the, the halftime shows at the Super Bowl. whatever happened to rock and roll? Well, that's a good question. Seeing as they play our music at, at, at football stadiums all the time, right? All the time. So I, think, right. But then I we get think, Jennifer Lopez yeah, and we yeah. get, uh, well, you just, know, these, you know, uh, these Timberlake. Decisions and, made, these decisions are made by powers bigger than us. They really don't like, rock music you know they really don't and um and and, and that's not their audience they should know their audience football yeah, fans like rock talking about this last year and he said to me man we really really wish we should get on you know we should we should do the 35th anniversary of stay hungry at the super bowl and we should do we're not going to take it and i want to rock could you imagine a hundred thousand people sing it of course i can imagine it why because twisted sister does it around the world in front of a hundred thousand people all the time so that's not a mystery to us. That's what um, that's what we we do, and and that's what the band developed into a supersized arena act that plays. You know, in our last tour in 2016, the crowds varied in size from 60,000 to 110,000, and that's what we do for a living around the world. And of course, it would be great, which is annoying. I mean, it's truly annoying. But you know, Richard, 
as far as Twisted Sisters concerned, you know, and and then vis-a-vis devil worshiping and devil music and perceptions of who and what we are and what we have represented, do you know, Richard, that in this 80s there were laws written in the United States to keep Twisted Sister out of certain cities? Do you know? Oh yes, you were the uh, the, uh, uh, the the sort of the test case. Absolutely, there were anti-rock laws that were written to keep Twisted Sister out of certain cities. We were harassed by police around the country. Dee was arrested for obscenity in Santa, I believe, in uh, in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, The cities passed laws with the most ridiculous, cliched uh, jargon that said if you if you committed sex on stage with 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 uh, with infants, uh, dead people, or animals. You couldn't play in a particular town. I'm sorry, Richard. Have I missed something? Has anybody been performing sex with children, dead people, or animals that you know of? I certainly don't. Or if you sang songs about having sex with children, dead people, or animals, you couldn't. And so the promoters would not cancel us because it doesn't apply to us. The town wouldn't believe it. They would send uh, their morals, their morale squad the moral squad to see the shows. I remember we were playing in, in I got, uh, sorry, JJ for the interruption. I got to cut away. We'll come back and we'll finish up on that story. Okay. Stay point. JJ French twist back with more in a moment where there's smoke. There's the conspiracy show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer radio. Welcome back. We were talking uh, just a few moments ago about uh, the, um, the parental guidance explicit lyrics, uh, which was sort of this new rating system that came about. And I'm just trying to imagine this Senate hearing. Uh, uh, and they're questioning, you know, we've got Frank Zappa, I think John Denver and Dee Snyder. Were they all sitting together at the Senate he- hearing? I, I'm trying to imagine the three of them. I think there was one after the other. I wasn't down there at the time. Okay. <laughs> but it was, the whole thing was just absurd. All of it was just a joke. And, um, I, you know, this this one this one church group came to see us in in some Texas town, and and you know we did our show, and I remember the guy coming backstage, and he goes, and and, and he's like from some church band, you know, they were supposed to, I don't know, proclaim us immoral or devil worshippers, and he he comes in, he goes, he goes, you guys curse a little too much, but you're damn entertaining. And and I said, do me a favor, man. Don't tell anybody you like me. I don't need to have like a person telling people that we're any good. That'll destroy a hard-earned reputation of being a misogynistic, wife-beating alcoholic. I mean, really, I don't destroy my reputation. Just tell people that we suck, and let's all just move on in life. So, uh, you know, life is absurd. And, of course, Richard, it gets absurd, right? Because 30 years later, we're a guest of the United States Army. We do a tour of uh, Korea. And here we are with five-star generals falling over themselves to get in photo ops with, with us. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, one year you're dragged in front of Congress, you know, destroying the moral fabric of America. And 30 years later, you know, you can't be in enough photo ops with generals. You know, well, boys, you're great. We love your band. You know, God bless right. America. So you live a long time, Richard, and you see some some really crazy things. You, and you've seen it all. Listen, I got to get you. Uh, I want to give you an opportunity. Uh, a couple of months ago, we had Sloane Bella on the program, and she was talking about satanic influences, Hollywood, and 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 in in the music business. And you know, we we see music artists flashing these Illuminati signs and and so forth. Uh, did you ever in 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 your you know in your days ever witness anything like that, Richard? I will tell you. That when I heard that person on your show, that's why I contacted you. 
I thought to myself, this is amongst the most absurd thing. Now, I can't speak for other bands, okay? I, I don't know what Motley Crue does, and I don't know what Black Sabbath does, and I don't hang out, you know, with Priest and ACDs. Well, it's not true, actually. I know those guys, you know? And they're all hardworking musicians. And do people play up things for the purposes of publicity? Absolutely. But not only do I know of no devil worshiping, but how about this, Richard? In the five solid years that the band toured internationally with every band on the planet Earth that you could possibly imagine, every group you could possibly imagine, do you know I was offered cocaine one time by a roadie of a band? That was it. One time by a roadie. Now, it was notoriously known that Twisted was a straight band. So when you're known as being straight, people tend to not, you know come to you and offer you stuff. But if it's so ubiquitous, that it's so out there, you would think you'd run across it. And I never saw it. Now, I am not telling you they're angels. I am not telling you people don't have substance abuse problems. I don't tell you that a lot of people are screwed up. I'm not, I can't claim it for these other people. But in terms of Twisted Sister and our world that we lived in, we were a hardworking bunch of guys. And all we wanted to do was play rock music. And that was really a play metal and go home and, and now and be with our families because everybody in the band was married with kids. So when D was in Congress testifying or, or defending our honor, he was probably right when he was thinking he was more morally upright than half the congressmen out there who were probably banging their secretaries and doing blow. Because we didn't do that. And I hate to bust the people's bubble and go, Well, what kind of fun is that? You know, sex, drugs and rock and roll. But to be honest, you know, Nugent was straight, Kiss doesn't get high. I mean, right. Some, some right. of us are just straight, just didn't do it. Doesn't mean we don't disapprove of other people doing it. I never understood how you could be stoned and play. And I fired a lot of guys in Twisted Sister because they couldn't get high. And I used to make a joke and say that um, but alcohol and drugs have no place in rock and roll, only because it was affecting my ability to make money. Because you're stoned out, you can't make rehearsals, you're sick all the time, you're not playing your parts right. We have a crazy schedule. We work four or five nights a week, four shows a night in the bars. You can't be stoned. You have to be ready for every show. You have to be in good shape. You can be on stage and act as crazy as possible, but, you know, it takes a lot of work to be that professionally crazy. And no, I never saw any of it. So when I hear stuff like that, it gets me nuts because when someone, when like, for example, there were kids, a kid got killed in Long Island and the people who did it, one of them wore a Twisted Sister shirt. So, of course, oh, my God, what do they do? They listen to your music, and they want to kill somebody or whatever. And what are you going to do? I mean, they also, guess what? I got news for you. You know, every heroin addict started out on milk, okay? So, really, I mean, come on. Um, and I was a Boy Scout. So, what, does Boy Scout lead to uh, heavy metal and then transvestitism? I, I don't know. <laughs> but the fact is, is that we, the blame game gets ridiculous, and we had no part of any of it. I'm sorry to bust people's bubble, but we just never did. Speaking of Boy Scouts, uh, you, you bought your first guitar. What did you, you, you sold uh, a bunch of apples? You, no, you set a record or something? I, I cookies, right, guitar, of course. Actually. I, That's uh, how you bought I, Yeah, I, uh, I sold Boy Scout cookies and um, 
and uh, my father convinced me to tell the scoutmaster to give me a ten cents a box um, uh, commission to sell cookies after they threw me out for having long hair. Let's be clear about this. They <laughs> threw me out, and then they asked me would I sell cookies to raise their quota because I'd sold cookies the year before, and I wanted a guitar that cost twenty five bucks. And my father said we'll go out and sell the hell out of the cookies. We sold two hundred forty boxes. I made twenty four dollars. My father kicked in a buck because he was a really big spender, and I bought my my <laughs> first guitar. So yeah, that is. And you've got Richard, quite a collection got, now. How many? You did your research. I'm really. I'm How really many guitars in your collection, Jay? I have sixty right now. Sixty, and your prized possession? Well, you know, I have a lot of really great ones. And by the way, I just have to say, because guys, you know, guitar players have guitars, and women tend to have bags and shoes. And my wife has a lot of bags and shoes, and her shoes have sex at night because there's twice as many in the morning. I think when I get up <laughs> than they were the, the night before. Anyway, but my guitars are valuable. The guitar I love the most. Uh, are you a guitar player, Richard? Uh, no, no, I am okay. not. So I play. I, I play on the radio. Okay, I have some very valuable guitars, but the one that I cherish the most is a 1954 Gibson Les Paul Jr., which probably cost like 90 bucks new, and it and I've owned it now for 35 years, and um, it's built in 1954. It's almost as old as me, and, uh, and and I'm looking at it right now in my room. It's the only guitar I keep out, and I love I love playing it, but I don't take any of those on the road with me. I usually play Epiphone Les Pauls because they play great, and I don't care if my roadie has a fight with his girlfriend and throws the guitar down a flight of stairs. So <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really matter to me. But uh, yeah, my 54 Les Paul Jr. for guitar players out there who are listening, my 54 uh, Gibson Les Paul Jr. is my favorite guitar in my collection. Fantastic. And what about the Pink Burst, the Pink Burst signature guitar? Well, the Pink Burst project, uh, I have a Les Paul that was painted pink by uh, a luthier in Long Island, 1978. became a signature guitar of mine. It's on every album we played. And um, I created a, uh, a project called the Pink Burst Project to raise money for um, a hospital that, that specializes in, in, uh, in a disease called uveitis, which is an eye disease that my daughter has, which is the leading cause of blindness among young girls at least in America, I know worldwide a lot of people have it. Um, she was diagnosed at age six. Uh, luckily, she was diagnosed in early age by a fluky eye exam in school. Um, the the disease is not curable, but it's it's controllable and it can go away by itself. The uveitis is the name of the condition. U v e i t i s. Uveitis. It's not U V rays. It's the uvia, which is the middle lens of your eye. It's like arthritis can, of the eyes, and and can we you give money. us a website for that that yeah, project? Yeah, if you go actually, if you go to pinkburstproject.org, you'll see me talk about this disease, and we raised a lot of money with the Pink Burst Project, which was a project in which I got 25 musical companies, guitar and amplifier companies, to do a color matching guitar to raise money and awareness for you guys. And I appreciate that that you bring it up because my daughter, who is 26 and about to have a baby, I'm about to be a grandma. Oh, fantastic! As a matter of fact, Pink Burst uh, Project. Dot org. Pinkburstproject.org. You will JJ. learn about uveitis. Uh, JJ, so what a pleasure. I hope you'll come on with me again sometime. Richard, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Like I said, I, I love your show. I listen to it all the time, and I really enjoy it. Thanks so much, buddy. I appreciate Thank it. You. JJ French. My thanks to Owen Wolf and uh, Ryan White. Back next week with a brand new show. Good night. Afraid of the Dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett 
from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up at the top of the hour, Twisted Sister, a co-founder, American guitarist, music producer, J.J. French will be here right now. Douglas Sirignano stays with us a few moments yet to talk about American conspiracies and cover-ups. And, uh, well, from black boxes to black voting machines, uh, let's talk about your conversation with uh, Bev Harris on stolen elections. I've just first set the scene. Uh, tell us a little bit about who Bev Harris is. Oh, well, you know, she is cons- she's the author of a book called Black Box Voting, and she's considered maybe the uh, foremost expert on stolen elections and how elections are stolen. She's been, they did a documentary about her on HBO. She's been on MSNBC, CNN, so she's pretty well known, but you don't see her around anymore. I don't know if the uh, corporate media is, uh, or the deep state is using their influence to uh, silence her, but um, she says that... Uh, we can't use computerized voting machines because because the people can't see if they're counting the uh, votes correctly. The only people who can see it is the computer uh, company. And if they have a partisan prejudice, then they can easily um, change the votes around for the Republican or the Democrat. And she says it's happened many times, and uh, it's not a good way to have a democracy, you know? Right. Well, this really goes back to uh, the 2000 presidential election. We had Al Gore, a Democrat, running against uh, George Walker, George W. Bush, and we had the uh, this discrepancy or uh, a discrepancy of si- something like 16,000 votes. Oh yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Tell us, you know, what happened there and how these machines may have been responsible, or, yeah. or the people that were had access to these machines. Oh, yeah, that was really something. It was um, at George Bush, he needed 16,000 votes to win Florida. And if he won Florida, then he wins the presidency. And so he needed 16,000. And so one of the machines down there uh, tallied up negative 16,000, which it it can't do that. You don't have negative votes. It put a negative count. And right after that happened, Jeb Bush was on the phone with this guy at Fox News who was Jeb Bush's cousin. He's George Bush's cousin. And that happened, and then Jeb Bush said to this guy, we won. And the, the guy, his first cousin at Fox, started uh, uh, wanting to call the election for Bush. And that's how the election gets called, I think. If the media calls him, then, then that means the guy won. So, And eventually it got, uh, those 16,000 got put, put back on. And then what, what did it take, two or three months before he finally uh, got a president? But it was very suspicious, you know, as I bet Harris said in Florida, like the election tampering and was over the top. It was over the top, obvious election tampering. And I guess that's because Jeb Bush uh, was George Bush's brother. Right. And and did Bev Harris talk to you about how this is done? How are they able to flip votes from one candidate to another using these voting machines? Well, you know, she... Uh, she was on MSNBC once. I think she showed how it can be done to um, oh, uh, Dean, the guy who's the governor of Vermont, um, Howard Dean. She showed her how easily it can be done. Um, you know, it's done from a, a hacker, a computer hacker. You know, they can, you know, 
cyberly or by cyber uh, abilities get in there and just change a few numbers around, and it can be done very easily. You know, uh, um, how many how many states do you know? How many states are using these voting machines? If they can so easily be hacked into, why, why don't they go to a, a paper ballot? Oh man, well that that you know, that would take a lot of change and a lot of effort, you know, and uh, you know maybe the politicians in the different states are corrupted and they they want to keep it that way, or to to steal elections, you know. Uh, I don't think much um, much. Uh, Progress has been made since Bev Harris uh, started her activism. She, she wrote a book. I don't think there's much progress because the system and the politicians are still corrupt, I think. We just have a few minutes yet, but let's talk about your interview with former IRS agent Joe Bannister, who talked to you, kind of a, a whistleblower on income tax. What yeah. was uh, the gist of, of uh, this former IRS agent Joe Bannister's comments? Well, he believes that, you know, the income tax is actually unconstitutional. It's not good for the public. Um, it's uh, the IRS is too abusive. You know, the founding fathers never wanted an income tax, and they never wanted a, uh, a privately owned central bank like the Federal Reserve. And it's just a way to, uh, I don't know, I think it came from the Illuminati. The Illuminati was a group uh, formed in the late 1700s. Men wanted to get behind politics and control uh, world government. They listed 10 ways to form the perfect world government, big brother government. One was to have an income tax. Another was to have a privately owned central bank, which is what the Federal Reserve and income tax is. So these elites, uh, these big bankers who control politics, they got this uh, Federal Reserve and income tax created because it's just a way for more and more of our money to be, to, to go over to the Federal Reserve and the government. It's a way to, for the public's, uh, financial strength to be sapped and for eventually the the uh, Federal Reserve and the income tax to uh, uh, have all our money so they can get the big brother. That's the, the big conspiracy theory, you know? Other than that, he says the income tax is just, uh, the IRS is too abusive and he believes uh, we'd be better off without it. You, you, uh, you mentioned a letter here that was uh, sent to uh the tax honesty movement by a Hawaii Senator, Daniel Inouye, back in 1989. Uh, do you remember the contents of that letter? Oh, yeah, I think I have that. Yeah, that's, um, oh, yeah, this protester said, sent a letter to Hawaii Senator Daniel Inouye, and he sent the letter back to him saying, the senator from Hawaii said, there is no provision of the Internal Revenue Code that specifically and unequivocally requires an individual to pay an income tax. So because, you know, the founding fathers were really against an income tax, and they uh, drafted the Constitution in a way to make it almost impossible because they saw that way that that's how government oppresses the citizenry through too much taxes. And so people like Joe Bannister, they actually believe the income tax is unconstitutional and illegal, and apparently Senator uh, from Hawaii also believes that, too. I think Ron Paul believes that also, you know? Right, right. And this uh, this former IRS agent that you interviewed, Joe Bannister, uh, what has become of him? I, I mean, after you have someone from the IRS sort of blowing the whistle on the IRS and saying that income tax is unconstitutional, uh, what becomes of someone like that? Is he able to work again? What does he do now? You know, I think he works as an accountant. Um, there was another woman who was an ex-IRS agent who um, 
and was doing protesting. She quit the IRS. Her name was Shirley Peel Jackson, and uh, uh, she was protesting, saying the income tax is unconstitutional, unfair, and they put her in prison for a while, and I think she was mistreated there. But I think Joe Bannister, you know, the IRS does intimidate people, even people like Joe Bannister, because I believe he feels it's a, it's a big task to try to make understand people understand that the income tax is unfair because the IRS is such a powerful organization. So I think he's working as a, uh, an accountant now, but I think that, you know, his, his, he's, we realize that the, it's tough to fight the IRS, you know, but ho- hopefully maybe, maybe we can do it. How do people get a copy of American Conspiracies and Cover-Ups, Douglas? My website is AmericanConspiraciesAndCoverups.com, exact name of the book. Got to put a slash between cover and ups, and it's on Amazon. So Amazon on my website. Terrific. AmericanConspiracyAndCover-Ups.com. AmericanConspiracyAndCover-Ups.com, also available at Amazon. Uh, Douglas, thanks so much for this. All the best. Thank you very much. It was great. It was great talking to you. Thank you. Likewise. Douglas Sirignano. All right. When we come back, J.J. French, co-founder of 80s icon heavy metal band Twisted Sister. We'll talk about the state of the music business and also, is there a satanic influence in the music business? He'll be here to tell us all that and much more. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with a simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate in your cabin in the woods. And a big howdy to each of you listening in on our flagship station, AM 740, 96.7 FM here in Toronto, Zoomer Radio. Hello to everyone listening in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. And hey to all of you streaming us on zoomerradio.ca and on the Strange Planet uh, YouTube channel. And uh, those of you, of course, joining us in the YouTube live chat. However, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Uh, A quick programming note, next week, David John Oates, the discoverer of reverse speech. He's a regular. uh, It's a monthly feature. We bring him on every month to to play some reversals. And I just want to remind you that uh, you can meet David John Oates in person. He's coming to Toronto all the way from Australia and appearing at a free reverse speech seminar. I'll be introducing David. That's Saturday, October the 26th at Metamorphosis Greek Orthodox Church. That's 40 Donlands Avenue here in Toronto. 40 Donlands Avenue, just steps from the Donlands subway station. And he'll play some reversals, explain how it all works, and answer your questions. That's from 2 to 4. But before that, at 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., there's a reverse speech workshop. And uh, you can learn basically how to identify reversals. And uh, then, as I say, David will take the stage from 2 to 4. Again, a free reverse speech seminar, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., the workshop, then 2 p.m. to 4 p.m., meet David John Oates, 
Saturday, October 26th, 40 Donlins Avenue in Toronto. Steps from the subway. Hope to see you there. Well, they dressed like women, they sang like men, and they played like mother, well, bleepers. <laughs> Twisted Sister began as a hardworking blue-collar bar band in the 70s that hit the big time in the 80s. And who could forget, of course, their anthemic mega hit, We're Not Gonna Take It, from the double platinum album Stay Hungry, which turns 35 this year, if you can believe it. And the band's co-founder, guitarist, J.J. French, is with us this hour. J.J., what a pleasure. How are you? Richard, how are you? I'm great. Terrific, thank you. You're in New York tonight. I am in New York, and uh, I listen to your show all the time. I have to tell you, um, I, I mean, I, it's funny because it puts me to sleep every night. I listen to it. Uh, there's a, you have a very soothing quality to your voice, Richard. And oh, I you appreciate have, that. You, you have you. the most interesting people. Well, and that's you, why you're on. <laughs> and you and you talk to them like I, I love it, you know, like the guy from the Mars Defense uh, group that that force, the Mars Defense Force guy. There you go. Yes, I, I love it because you know it's not enough that he's been on Mars for fourteen years, but that you say to him, "Well, so what did you have for dinner the other night?" It's like, okay, I, I, listen, the world is full of really interesting people, and, and, uh, and your show. And you've met your. <laughs> Your, your show features a lot of them, and by the way, my band is considered part of that group of kind of crazies, so I get it, because people right. are always asking me questions about my band. It's show business, isn't it? Um, yes. Uh, what, hard to believe, Stay Hungry, 35 years old this year, and we should mention uh, the band is getting together, not to play, I guess, but you're getting together, is it down in Florida in November? To commemorate yeah, uh, the 35th actually, anniversary? At the end of this month. Um, so here's the thing. Here's the crazy statistic, Richard. Stay Hungry sold 6 million records. Okay? Um, mm -hmm. uh, it's actually a worldwide 6 million. And um, we're not going to take it. And I Want to Rock, the, the other big hit from that album, are the two most licensed songs in the history of heavy metal. They're in more TV shows, movies, soundtracks, movie trailers, and commercials than any other songs from any other band from the, from the 80s. And we're honored to uh, have songs that have been that lasting. I mean, we just did a deal this week for a, uh, an online um, video game. Uh, slot machine uh, with the two songs and the video recreation, uh, animated recreations of the famous videos that have gone on with this stuff. So it's astonishing to me. You it know, is. I, the only thing more astonishing that the fact that Stay Hungry is 35 years old is that I started Twisted Sister 47 years ago. That may be a little bit more astonishing. 1972. Back in the day, you were playing like six nights a week, five sets a night. Let me ask you. Because I've read where you said, you know, by the time success really came in the uh, the early to mid 80s, you were kind of done with it. Were you having more fun when you were this, you know, this blue collar bar band in the early 70s? Were you having more fun then or when you were sort of, you know, selling double platinum albums in, in 1984? Well, the life of a rock star or a rock and roll musician as perceived by fans the sex drugs rock and roll aspect of it was much more a part of the early days and not a part of the latter days you know by the time 
the band was signed to Atlantic Records, which was in 1983. Uh, you know, that band was a, just a, a straight-ahead, straight-up business or organization, a company that worked really hard to get where it got, and we just wanted to do work and play and we never there was no recreation ever we never went to parties we never threw parties we didn't hang out with other bands because we were older than them and we had very little interest in what they were doing we were just it was the payoff for working really hard so to answer your question the band that existed in the bars back in the 70s well that band or that group of bands because frankly for those who don't know the version of Twisted Sister that ultimately made it and became famous. And, and Richard, you know, in Canada, we became huge in, in Canada. Uh, much right. music fell in love with, with Twisted Sister and played our videos incessantly. And our album sold six times the normal ratio of American to Canadian sales on Stay Hungry. So, so we, we, we know that. Uh, that was unusual. But back, but, you know, back in the, bar days, uh, the band that made it was the 14th version, right? So I had to live through 13 other versions of the band. <laughs> you know, Vince brother. You know, so Richard, you've been on radio for many years, I'm assuming, correct? A few, sure. Yes. Okay, a few. You're probably being very modest. You, you, <laughs> know how long it, yeah. you know how long you have to really work. People don't know how much you truly sacrifice, the crazy hours you keep, especially a show like yours. Um, you've got to take advantage of every opportunity that comes your way. You can never let a chance go by. But when I have people come to me and ask me for advice, I, you know, it was a very different world. Let, let, let me set the stage for you a little bit, Richard. Back in 19... In December of 72, when the band started, Richard Nixon was president of the United States. Um, McDonald's had less than a million hamburgers sold. <laughs> Gasoline was 23 cents a gallon. A hotel room was like $19.95 at a Red Roof Inn. You could rent a band house for $300 a month. There were thousands of nightclubs to play in. The drinking age, at least down here, where we are, was 18. And, of course, there was a record industry with which you could plot your attempt to get a record deal. Now, that was the world that I faced. That was the world that I grew up in. That is the world that Twisted Sister grew up in, that you could work right away playing cover songs. Uh, you know, in those days, we played Bowie and Mott the Hoople and Lou Reed, because we were a glitter band. We, we, we were inspired by David Bowie. And, um, and the New York Dolls. And, and the, the New York well, Dolls. Actually, you know, it's funny, because the Dolls, yeah, we were in a way. Um, you know, the Dolls used to play at a place called the Mercer Arts Center back in uh, the summer of 1972. And, and one of my good friends, Jane Rabb, who went on to be the producer for the TV show Sex and the City and, and uh, Blue Bloods, Janie was really good friends with Billy and Syl from the Dolls. And she told me in the summer of 72 that they were playing and I should come and see them. And I was, um, I was still a Grateful Dead freak back in 1972, believe it or not. You know, I was an uber hippie, is what I was. I was like a super Grateful Dead, Allman Brothers hippie. And and I was obsessed with the Grateful Dead, and I'd seen them like 27 times. Like 26 times I saw them on acid, right? But on the 27th time, I was straight, and it was like the worst band I ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> 
in my life. And like, uh, by the way, I know that, that people think that's a joke. I've said that story in our documentary, We Are Twisted Effing Sister, which, you know, just ran for two years on Netflix. Right. Believe it or not, um, I got an email from the, the son of the drummer of the Grateful Dead, <laughs> Justin Kreutzmann, who, said, oh, who's, who, who watched our documentary and heard my comment. I saw the Grateful Dead 27 times, 26 times on acid, 27 times I went straight, and it was the worst thing I ever heard. And I get an email that says, hi, this is Justin Kreutzmann. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> um, he goes, my dad is Bill Kreutzmann. I just want you to know I saw your documentary. That was the funniest thing I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. So anyway, I was a deadhead, you know, and then, and then by some weird confluence of circumstances, I, I, get, a, uh, I get a subscription to a magazine called Fusion. Uh, maybe, it was, maybe it was a Canadian rock magazine. I don't remember, but Bill Bowie was on the cover, and I look at this and I freak out. just so happens at this very moment, which is in August of 72, the Dolls are playing at the Mercer Arts Center, and between going down to see the Dolls and seeing Bowie on the cover and then buying Ziggy Stardust and seeing Mick Ronson with his blonde hair and the rock star shtick, you know, I said, wow, that's what right. I want to be. And I would go down to the, see the Dolls every Sunday they play at the Mercer Arts Center. Now, I was fortunate enough to be there. You know, I was 20 years old. I'm at, I'm at the Mercer Arts Center every Sunday. And here's a band, the Dolls, and I kind of knew Johnny, um, Johnny Thunders, because I used to hang out in the in Central Park, and Johnny was always hanging out in the park. I kind of knew him, um, and I would go see the Dolls, but they were awful. They were like one of the worst bands I'd ever seen in my life, but <laughs> they looked great, you know? They looked amazing, and I remember a record, a, a guy, I think it was a record industry guy, uh, stopped me as I was leaving the, the Mercer Arts Center one Sunday evening and said, hey, did you just see that band? And I said, yeah, the New York Dolls. He goes, what did you think? I think he wanted to know. He think I think he wanted me to say, "Oh man, they're the greatest thing in the world. You should sign them or something." And I just said, "God, they look amazing. If they could only play, they'd be really great." And that was the inspiration behind Twisted Sister. Try to look like that, but actually know how to play. So right, right, I, and that's that's kind of like how that started. And so that first version, I, I auditioned for a band called Silver Star. In New Jersey, I got I got a, a phone number from a guy who gave me a, a, you know the phone number of the drummer Mel, and I auditioned for the band. And you know, in that band, that first version of the band, Richard was kind of everybody's dream of what a rock and roll band would be like. Uh, we were 20 years old. We were living in a house together. The lead singer was the Svengali, Charles Manson-y kind of guy who had like a real <laughs> effect on, on women. I mean, he was gorgeous looking, not like D, who looks like Sarah Jessica Parker dipped in a vat of acid. I'm talking about, <laughs> I, I'm talking about like a really gorgeous, and I, by the way, D and I are very close, and I introduced him on stage with that description. He has a great sense of humor, so don't think I just like gave up the, the ghost on it. Uh, but, um, but the thing is that the singer at this version of the band, Michael Valentine, was beautiful. And and uh, I was told by the drummer that you could have sex with any girl in the house except the lead singer's girlfriend. And frankly, Richard, I was 20 years old and I was a hippie and druggy and I'd been through a lot of crazy stuff in New York City, but I had never kind of lived, lived, excuse me, lived in a kind of rock 
Svengali uh, a house where you could be given women, you know, by somebody if they order them into you. I mean, it sounds, I know people are listening to this and going, well, of course you did that because you guys are all just a bunch of drug addicts, and alcoholics, wife-beating, you know, idiots. Truth is, no, but I, I really didn't quite understand this part of the business. And, and I literally, I'm living in a house for a week and this gorgeous girl walks in to my room. And, uh, and we're talking, you know, for a little while. I think I was reading the New York Times, which I guess was like 20 steps intellectually above anybody else in the household, you know? So I'm sitting in my room reading the New York Times, uh, 20 years old, I'm reading about, you know, some p- political deal. And, uh, this gorgeous girl walks in and, uh, and we kind of talk for a while. And then, you know, she leaves and the singer comes in about a half hour later and says, well, how was it? I said, how was why? He said, well, you know, how was uh girl? I said, what, 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 what do you mean? Well, you did, you know, have sex with her, didn't you? I, I said, no, we had a conversation. He said, you had a wire? <laughs> what? This will not, said, you will never make it in this business. <laughs> I said, we had a conversation. He said, dude, I sent her in to have sex with you. And I went, trust me, I'll never make that mistake. <laughs> I will never make that mistake again. Don't have to tell me twice. So this was... And then, of course, he was a drinker, and the band was drink. And I never drank; it wasn't my thing, drinking. So I used to preside over this band who was drinking a lot. Now, having said that, Richard, we did work six nights a week, five shows a night. Right? How many? How many uh, lead vocalists did you go through before you settled on young Daniel Snyder, well, later to become D. Snyder? Yeah. What, what kind of happened was, I mean, think about it. We were doing six shows a week, five. Uh, six nights a week, five shows a night. In the first two years, we had played 2,000 shows, 2,000 performances. I mean, this is how you learn how to play in a band, you know? So, uh, right. we, we, you know, when bands come to me now and they go, hey, man, I want you to see my band. And I go, how many shows? How long have you been together? Two years. How many shows you play? Oh, I don't know, 50. I said, well, call me when you get to 500. 500? We'll never get to 500. I said, well, there's a good chance I ain't going to be coming to see your band. So, like, uh, you know, it takes a long time to learn how to be good. So, so that version of the band lasted, you know, two years. And then Michael, the singer, and the drummer Mel got into a bar fight. And Michael pulled out a loaded gun, threatened to kill Mel. I walked in and watched this about uh, this murder about to take place, thinking my life is going to pass in front of me. and I'm going to be a witness to a murder. It's what I thought was going to happen. But Michael, to his credit, did not shoot Mel, threw the gun down. They got in a fist fight. And um, that version of the band broke up. So the singer and the guitar player, Michael and Billy, they're thrown out. Now we're back. Now we're down to three original guys. Of course, the other two, you still don't know. And we hire two, we hire three more guys to replace them, right? Two guys to replace them. And that band stays together for about two months. Then that lead singer who we hired, he had a, I think he was a head was a meth addict or something. And he just disappeared, never showed up for a gig. Uh, after two months, he kind of disappeared. Now we're down to a four piece. And um, I didn't want to hire another lead singer because lead singers are crazy. You know, they're just crazy. I mean, they're LSD, lead singer's disease. You know, so I figured <laughs> I would take over. That way, at least I could control everything, except that my voice sucks. You know, God created Bob Dylan and Lou Reed so I could do cover material. So <laughs> um, the bottom line is, is that um, uh, we weren't doing too well with me singing Lou Reed songs and Bob Dylan songs. You know, after we had been doing Bowie and, and 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 Martha Hoople and Rolling Stones and Alice Cooper and all this and, and the singer after the original singer he was like a Rod Stewart guy so I I couldn't compete what happened was essentially that man dissolved and 
my agent said, look, man, you want to, you want to, um, you really want to make money. You got to do Led Zeppelin. And here's this guy's phone number. His name is Danny Snyder. He's in a band called Peacock. Um, and, uh, so call him up and I call him up and he comes down and we talk briefly and, uh, I said, wow, this could work. You know, I'd like to try him out. And I told this to the, uh, guitar player and, and a drummer of the band that was currently Twisted Sister, and they showed no interest. They said, no, man, you're doing a great job. I didn't realize at that moment that they were plotting to leave the band, steal the truck, and take my equipment. Okay, that was what was going on. Um, so I didn't hire D at that point, and then eventually, a couple of months later, the band broke up, they stole the truck, and the band then dissolved. This is uh, around um, Halloween 1975, at which point, um, I, uh, or Labor Day 75, at which point the bass player and I really thought about this and said, we got to re- rebuild the band again. And at that time, I called D. And D, you know, um, basically D came in and auditioned. Um, I'm writing my book. I'm writing the memoirs now. So actually, this is all really fresh because I'm actually writing them right now. D uh, auditioned um, the second week of, uh, first week of February in 1976, and he was great. It was amazing. How many drummers were you going through drummers like on Spinal Tap? Well, we did, but at that point, so now of course, uh, when D joined, we already were on drummer number two. I warned D at the at the audition for him, don't get too close to this guy because he's going next. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> we fired the second drummer, which began a tradition in Twisted Sister, which is the tradition's called "Let's go to the diner." And if I ever told you we're going to the diner, that means I'm firing you. Um, and uh, it also means that we've already figured out a replacement for you. So we're going to give you two weeks pay and you're not going to do last two weeks with us. Like with a super sad face, we're just going to dump you right off the bat and you're gone. So D ushers out and a drummer called Tony Petri comes in. And then this band, me and Kenny, the bass player and D and Eddie Ojeda, the guitar player, who was my old high school buddy and, and Tony and that band, worked for three solid years and became famous in the tri-state area. People who saw the band back in the 70s when the band was huge. And Richard, let me tell you how huge it was to give you this perspective. I'm going to, Jay, Jay yeah. I'm going to get you to hold on to that because yeah. we're going to take a quick time out okay. and we'll come back. J.J. French from Twisted Sister, my guest. We'll also open up the phone lines uh, after the bottom of the hour and uh, you can weigh in, take questions and comments for uh, American guitarist, producer, co-founder of one of the uh, great uh, iconic bands of the 1980s, J.J. French from Twisted Sister, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us.
From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. If you were to compile a list of people, living or dead, you'd want to speak to in order to get at the truth surrounding 9-11, the U.S. Federal Reserve, rigged elections, the suppression of cancer cures and treatments, the JFK assassination, and more, who would you want to meet and speak with? Well, Douglas Sirignano will be here this hour to talk about his conversations with the likes of Noam Chomsky the late Jim Mars, G. Edward Griffin, and others, and he'll reveal what they told him about these and other conspiracies again coming up this hour. Coming up in hour two, American guitarist, producer, and one of the founding members of Twisted Sister, J.J. French, joins me, and we'll talk about uh, the state of the uh, music business. Is rock dead, as uh, some have suggested? And uh, we'll also... Uh, get J.J. to respond to a show we did a few months back with L.A. psychic Sloan Bella. You may recall she was on the on the program to talk about satanic Hollywood and satanic influences in the music business. And not long after hearing that show, J.J. got a hold of me and uh, said, I'd like to come on and, and, and talk about that as well. So uh, we'll give him his, him his opportunity. And can't wait to talk to uh, to JJ. Uh, Owen Wolf is my technical producer. Ryan White is my live stream producer. And we are live streaming on the YouTube channel, Strange Planet. Strange Planet. Make sure to hit that red sub button. For those intrepid souls seeking to peer deeper into America's greatest conspiracies, you do very well by reading Douglas Sirignano's voluminous book, American Conspiracies and Cover-Ups. From the foreknowledge of the attacks of Pearl Harbor in September 11, 2001, to the truth behind the assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Dr. Martin Luther King, no conspiracy is left behind. Is the Federal Reserve System unconstitutional? Was the IRS created to bail out big banks? Are cancer cures and cheap alternatives, uh, cheap alternative energy being suppressed? Are elections made fraudulent by hacked voting machines? We'll get into as many of these as we possibly can. Douglas Sirignano graduated from Long Island University, summa cum laude, with a degree in history. His interview articles have appeared on Alex Jones's Infowars.com, Disinformation.com, Independent.org, in Adventure de l'Histoire magazine, and on many other websites. And again, the book is American Conspiracies and Cover-Ups. Douglas Sirignano, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Oh, very good. Uh, thank you very much. That was a great introduction. Thank you. It's good to be here. A pleasure to have you. Let me ask you right out of the shoot, because this this word conspiracy, I mean, when I started talking about conspiracies in the in the late 90s on on mainstream media, mainstream radio, rather, it was kind of a, a curiosity. And it was one of those things. Well, nobody gets hurt. You're talking about Bigfoot. You're talking about 
a lot of cold cases like JFK. But lately, we are seeing a real attitudinal change towards this this word on the part of uh, institutions like the mainstream media, uh, even, for example, intelligence uh, organizations in the United States have floated the idea that conspiracy theorists should be called domestic terrorists. So my question to you, Douglas, is, is it getting harder to publish a book like this? Is it getting harder to approach uh, publishers and wanting to write about these things? Uh, perhaps, but well, my publisher is uh, uh, Skyhorse Publishing. They're probably the biggest publisher of uh, conspiracy theory literature. They published uh, 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 Roger Stone and uh, Jesse Ventura and Jerome Kersey. So they're into it, uh, Skyhorse. Um, I think it might be getting tougher. I think maybe it's come more to the mainstream because of the Internet, because so much of this information has come out with the advent of the Internet. And then more people are going to, like, Drudge.com and uh, Breitbart.com. And those uh, news sources are actually open to conspiracy theories. And so it's come more mainstream, I think, because of the Internet. But now that the deep state is seeing that more people are becoming aware, then maybe they're going to try to suppress it more. And, you know, like you say, maybe you're right about that. Maybe it is going to become more difficult. Of all the people that you talked to, to, and I I believe there are 12 uh, luminaries, yeah. really. Uh, the late Jim Mars, who I got a chance to know a little bit. He just passed recently, of course. Professor Noam Chomsky, uh, G. Edward Griffin, uh, who wrote, uh, I think, uh, a book that's on every conspiracy uh, enthusiasts, if I can use that word, uh, yeah. uh, bookshelf, and that would be the the the, the uh, creature from Jekyll Island. And we'll talk about the uh, the Federal Reserve a little bit. Uh, Professor David Ray Griffin, of course, on nine eleven. Uh, Dr. William Pepper, uh, who um, uh, was a good friend of Dr. Martin Luther King uh, Jr. and uh, so many others. But who was there one in particular that that um, said something to you during the course of all of these interviews that really blew your socks off? Um, well, uh, maybe Jim Morris. I think he was he really uh, he talked about how maybe a conspiracy has been going back all the way to the. Uh, first civilization, which is Sumeria, I believe, 5000 BC. He thinks secret societies have been uh, controlling things since then. They've passed it down and down and down. So that notion there is is uh, will blow your socks off, you know. And he may be right about that. I think yeah, can at least trace it back to an organization called the Illuminati, which is formed in late 1700s. Very powerful men wanted to get behind the scenes and control uh, politics, and then set up a Big Brother government. I believe that it's been handed down uh, from at least then, but Jim Morris seems, seems to think it's been around for five thousand years. So that that was pretty alar- that was pretty amazing to hear about. Right. How how long before Jim passed did you did you meet with him? I talked to him on the phone twice, and I think it was about nine months before he passed away. Ah, right. Yeah. He just you know what was fascinating about uh, Jim because he was a perennial New York Times bestseller. Talking about these these topics, which are radio, are really becoming radioactive, and I, I don't know that there are too many too many other uh, uh, authors that that could pull that off. Um, yeah, what do you think it was about Jim that 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 he was able to sort of straddle those two worlds? This, as I say, this radioactive world of conspiracy, but also, uh, you know, to get on the New York Times bestseller list. 
Yeah, you know, I should have asked him about that. That is a good question. I wanted to ask him, you know, Jim, how do your books get published by the big corporate uh, media when it's the corporations that are covering up the uh, conspiracies? I don't know. You know, I don't know the answer to that question. And I wish I had asked him uh, because it's a good question, you know. Well, speaking of corporate media, you, you sat down with uh, with Professor Noam Chomsky or talked to him on the phone. Yes. Uh, was he was he approachable? He, he really was. Uh, and uh, I didn't tell him I was going to write a book about conspiracy theories because he does not believe in conspiracy theories. But I sent him a, uh, an email and uh, I was surprised to get it back. Two weeks later, he said, if you can arrange it with my secretary, uh, you can do it. I think you could get an interview with him. I even offered to pay him, and he said, no, you don't have to pay me. I think if you want to get an interview, I think you could. <laughs> but he, he, does not, right. he does not believe in conspiracy theories, so I had to argue about him with that. <laughs> and, and what did you ask him in particular about corporate media? Because, you know, this is really uh, a subject of great importance these days when it seems like mainstream news organizations in particular are in the tank for one political party or another. What did yeah. Chomsky have to say about that? Um, well, he believes that, you know, it's the big corporations that control the media and it's probably, you know, pretty consolidated six corporations that are connected to each other. And so they're always going to protect the interests of big business, you know, and, and I think the big business interests are the same as the government's interests. So the mainstream media is just going to be the corporate government view, you know. I didn't talk to him so much about, like, whether it was uh, controlled by the right or left, uh, but more a corporate control, you know. Right, right. Uh, to me, what, what is interesting is that, for example, and I don't want to get overly political here, but... Obviously, we know that the mainstream media is is not particularly enamored of the current resident of the White House. And the only time they seem to applaud uh, his efforts or, in fact, use the term presidential is when he bombs another country. Have you noticed that? Oh, well, you know, that that's a shame. You know, uh, I didn't notice that, but I, I could believe it, you know, because it seems like the deep state is always up for another war, you know, because I guess it makes a lot of money for the military-industrial complex. But I, I could believe what you said. I didn't notice that, but uh, I know they're always hammering Trump, and they disagree with him when he bombs another country, right? Because that's the U.S. government for you. It's like a, a war machine, right? Right. But even CNN, who, let's face it, you know, are, are fairly liberal, left of center, will, will call him presidential only if he bombs another country. Uh, now, Chomsky... Um, did he have a a sort of a solution? I mean, what he's is he suggesting that we break up the this monopoly? It's not a, an entire monopoly; it's a virtual monopoly. Six basically six yeah. corporations run all the media. Uh, I mean, what what was his solution? You know, I don't know if he really had a solution. His his famous book on that is Manufacturing Consent, as you probably know. It's how yes. he feels the corporations and the deep state are controlling the media. You know, I don't think he has much of a solution. I bet if you called him up, you, you could ask him. I bet he, he could get him. Oh, wait a minute. You're a conspiracy theory. I don't know if he's into that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I don't think he's got a solution, you know. Um, I'm trying to think. 
Well, not really, but somebody said to, to break up the, uh, to make it more difficult for one corporation to own so many media outlets could be a solution. I think uh, that's something Ralph Nader said. So, Right, right. And, and this began, I guess, by and large, I mean, I guess it re- was really accelerated during the Clinton years when there was some deregulation because it used to be, for example, a media company couldn't own more than, you know, X number of stations in a market. Let's say, you know, two state, two TV stations or a handful of radio stations. Uh, and then that was all deregulated. And so then you had these bigger companies gobbling up uh, smaller ones and, and, and they could virtually own the media, all of the media in one town, the newspapers, the television, oh. the radio. I think that's a movement towards Big Brother, if you ask me. Maybe the, like, I think a small amount of corporations, they want to get more and more power. So maybe they did that so they can consolidate more and more power. Oh, who was, uh, somebody had a good quote about that. Bill Moyers, he said, the founders didn't count on large mega corporations not only owning the means, uh, the means of journalism, but so many of the areas that journalism should be covering, you know? Right. What was the one thing that you wanted to find out in particular about corporate media from Chomsky? Well, uh, I maybe wanted to see if he thought it was a conspiracy, because uh, but he doesn't really. Uh, because I think the conspiracy could be coming from the Council on Foreign Relations and the CIA, too, because so many of uh, the media outlets are run by people who uh, belong to the Council on Foreign Relations. And the Council on Foreign Relations is one of the secretive New World Order think tanks that want to globalize the world. They want to get the big brother, I think. And so I asked him about that. He said, no, no, it's, but, I, you know, some people think that's where the conspiracy is. And also, you know, you probably know the CIA had a specific program, Operation Mockingbird, to yes. make sure they ha- have so many, uh, they could have a lot of influence over the media. And I think a lot of the media is answering to uh, CIA influence. I think that's why Trump is always getting hammered. God, I feel sorry for the guy sometimes. <laughs> but I think the conspiracy might be coming from the Council on Foreign Relations at CIA, although Chomsky did not believe that. He, he doesn't go up for that. So does Chomsky believe that Operation Mockingbird was real, or does he dismi- is he dismissive of that idea as well? Oh, you know, I should have asked him that specifically. I did ask him about the CIA's influence. Um, I asked him about the church committee and right. I, you could, you could see him in the interview I did with him. Uh, he thinks that it doesn't have like that much control. That's my impression that I got from him, that it has, uh, some control, but not like a overarching control that some people think the CIA might have. Cause that, that was the purpose of operation mockingbird to really get, uh, a, a pervasive control over the media. I don't think he believes that though. All right, let's um, let's move on to uh, G. Edward Griffin and the Federal Reserve Bank. And I mentioned his landmark work, The Creature from Jekyll Island. Uh, what did what did uh, Edward, G. Edward Griffin tell you about the formation of the, the, the Federal Reserve back in 1913? Because a lot of people think that was kind of uh, rammed through Congress during the Christmas break when a lot of a lot of yeah. people were uh, had already left the Capitol, uh, and and uh, and so they were. That's the only way they were were able to squeak yeah. that piece of controversial legislation through. Yeah, he definitely talked about that, and also, you know, the meeting at Jekyll Island where banking representatives and uh, Senator Nelson Aldridge they met at Jekyll Island. 
right before it got snuck through, and that was done very secretively also. That's probably something that a lot of people who are into conspiracies know about, that it was really done pretty surreptitiously. The Federal Reserve, like you said, it was a Christmas holiday when a lot of the uh, congressmen weren't around, and they got it slipped through there. Yeah, it was pretty much maybe uh, secretive and conspiratorial. One of the things that uh, Mr. Griffin always told me is, uh, and you know, on others, obviously, but I've, I've had the pleasure of speaking with him maybe a half a dozen times. And he said, you know, the big misconception about the, the Fed is it's neither federal, nor is it a reserve, nor is it a bank. Uh, yeah. How did he describe the Federal Reserve Bank to you and its purpose? He, yeah, just like that, really. <laughs> he, he calls it a cartel. You know, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's a little bit of a complicated uh, subject. Um, but he said, yeah, they don't really have any reserves that they create money out of nothing, you know, and it's not federal because I think he said part of the federal reserve is part of the government, but part is a private corporation. And, uh, as I understand it, you know, it's pretty complicated, but I understand that if the government issued its own money through excise and import taxes, instead of borrowing from the federal reserve, we wouldn't have to pay interest on our money. And so we could avoid a big debt. You know, that's as much as I understand. And also, if the government issued the money in, in proper proportion, either on the gold standard or in uh, proper proportion with the uh, expansion of goods and services, then we wouldn't have inflation. But this, this system we have is causing debt and inflation, and it's no good for us. That's, that's you know, about as much as I understand, because it's a pretty complicated subject, you know? It is indeed. And, and um, most... Most of us don't really understand money. There's something very sort of uh, magical uh, or even occultic about about yeah. uh, about money. Um, did he talk to you about the importance of um, auditing the Fed? Because we hear uh, a lot about that, and nothing seems to happen. What would yeah. that What would that involve? Auditing the Fed? Well, you know. Again, it's complicated to me, but uh, yeah, he said he should audit, but he thinks he should be more than auditing. He should, agrees with like Ron Paul that we should end the Fed, you know? Maybe not auditing is enough, but if we did audit the Fed, then at least, you know, maybe the secretiveness, because the Fed acts independently of the Congress and the president, and uh, to audit it would at least give us an idea a little bit of what, about what's going on. But he believes it's, we should do more than that, and that's end the Fed. Did you happen to mention to him, or did he mention to you the fact that a number of presidents, the only two presidents really that have sort of openly challenged the Fed, ended up being shot in the head in public? Um, Jim Morris talked about that <laughs> to me. Ah. Um, G. Edward Griffin would probably, uh, although he believes that when Kennedy, you're talking about Lincoln and Kennedy, right? Yes. Uh, when, he, when Kennedy issued uh, money outside of the Federal Reserve, I think he believes that that wasn't a very significant, that he only issued a little bit. And I think it's his opinion that Kennedy wasn't shot for that reason. Uh, but other people think that maybe that had something to do with it. I know Jim Mars believes that had something to do with it. Yeah, because it's so important. The Federal Reserve is, is the way that the most powerful people in the world, I believe, and other central banks control us. They control us through interest rates. They control the economy through these central banks. And I hope uh, Donald Trump doesn't get shot in the head because he's always uh, 
speaking out against it. And uh, I don't know, as as many polls as Trump has, if he could do something to end the Fed, then God bless him, you know. Because um, uh, I think Trump, you know, for all his personality flaws, uh, the fact that he uh, wants to maybe uh, do something about the Fed is admirable to me because it's at the heart, the heart of uh, the economy and our troubles, I believe. The banking system is something we should get rid of. Uh-huh. All right, Douglas. Yeah. Douglas, stay yeah. put. We're going to take a quick time out and we'll come back and uh, we'll talk about uh, rigged elections, suppressed cancer cures, and much more. Douglas Sirignano is the author of American Conspiracies and Cover-Ups. Stay with us. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Douglas Cirignano is with us and uh, his new book, uh, Voluminous, to say the least, American Conspiracies and Cover-Ups, and that's published by Skyhorse. Uh, we're coming up on the 56th anniversary of the JFK assassination next month. And uh, to cover off this topic, you, you chose kind of an interesting individual to interview, and that's Barr McClellan, who was LBJ's attorney. Uh, what, why did you go to Barr McClellan? What was it you wanted to, to learn from Barr? Um, well, I, I remember I saw him on C-SPAN, and he just seemed so interesting. It was, it was sensational. He's saying that LBJ was the mastermind of the Kennedy assassination. I thought there was something to that. I don't believe that. I believe it was more the um, military-industrial complex and the CIA. But I think LBJ had a foreknowledge, and he, he might have he might have helped, you know. And I think, that, but L, you know, some people believe that that LBJ was the the mastermind. I think Roger Stone just wrote a book about that. I think Jacqueline yes. Kennedy believed that. Um, I think he had something to do with it. He knew about it, but I don't think I think it was more uh, military-industrial complex and CIA. I, I agree with you. I, he certainly had perhaps arguably the most to gain from yes. uh, Kennedy's death, because as as Barr McClellan explained and as you also uh, discuss in the in the book, uh, if it if it weren't for Kennedy's assassination, Johnson may have ended up in prison. Explain. Oh, well, he Johnson was a lot more crooked than most people might know. I think he was taking a lot of money under the table when he was a the Senate. Senate Majority Leader in the 50s, he was, uh, I think he was in politics just to make money. And uh, he would say whatever he had to say to get elected. And he, there were a number of scandals he was involved with. Um, there was this guy, Bobby Baker, who was a very corrupt, uh, he worked in the Senate, he went to prison. Johnson was his uh, mentor. Another guy, Billy Solestis, a corrupt uh, businessman down in Texas. They were investigating his business dealings and Johnson apparently helped him make money in an illegal way. So, yes, Johnson very well might have gone to prison if Kennedy had been assassinated. Once he got into ma- the presidency, then he could control, you know, uh, control the investigation into himself. And he blocked it, stopped it. And and Barr McClellan is also, uh, well, he claims to have insider knowledge that, that uh, Johnson stole, I believe, the 1948 Texas Senate race. I mean, there was some... Uh, some payoffs and uh, uh, yeah. falsification of, of, of votes and so forth. Did Mark Bar McClelland tell you he had insider knowledge that that was the case? Yes, yes, he did. He actually, 
uh, maybe the, the head lawyer, he, Barr McClellan worked for the law firm that uh, represented uh, LBJ, and one of the top lawyers in the firm was a guy named Don Thomas, and Don Thomas basically uh, explained to Barr McClellan that he stole votes in 1948 Senate race. He told them how he did it. So uh, Barr McClellan, yes, he said he had, uh, he had the inside information on that. He was told by one of the lawyers there uh, that he was the guy who did it. Just another uh, example of how corrupt uh, LBJ was. Right, right. Uh, did you ask Barr McClellan about LBJ's mistress, Madeline Brown, who, according to the legend, and we don't know if it's true or not, but the she claims that after uh, a late night meeting the day before the assassination at, uh, I think it was Clint Murchison's house, uh, that was also attended allegedly by George Herbert Walker Bush, perhaps even Richard Nixon, uh, and, and many others. But but uh, according yeah. to Madeleine Brown, Johnson left that meeting and told her, after tomorrow, that SOB Jack Kennedy will never embarrass me again. Yes. Have you heard that story? Yes, I've heard that. Yes, I did ask him about that. I asked him if he felt she was uh, credible, and he said he, he wasn't sure. He said some people think she was. Some people think it wasn't, but he said it doesn't matter because there's so much evidence anyway that Johnson was a part of the assassination that it doesn't matter. He, he, he couldn't figure out if she was credible or not. But I think she's right on. If you go to YouTube and uh, type in Madeline Brown, I think she says it in a video on YouTube. She says that Johnson told her that. So you, you, I bet maybe you can look into her eyes there and see if you think she's telling the truth. <laughs> right, right. Did you talk about, you know, why Kennedy took Johnson? Was it simply because he needed to, needed Texas? I mean, you have this, this uh, as you point out, I think you used the term dark. Kennedy was the light and dark. Johnson was the oh, darkness. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, no, I, I didn't talk to him. Why did he take uh, Johnson? Now, that's a good question. Um, no, I, I don't know. That's I did not ask him that. So that would be why did Kennedy take somebody probably got an explanation for that. <laughs> right. Uh, you also talked to, to Dr. William Pepper on uh, Martin Luther King uh, assassination. How well did did uh, Pepper know King? He knew him very well in the last year of his life, though, only in the last year. But he became uh, pretty good friends with him to the point that when Dr. King decided he was going to run for president in 1968, they had a convention and he asked Pepper to introduce him. He was a guy who introduced Dr. King when he was running for president, and uh, Mar uh, Pepper ended up being one of the pallbearers at uh, Martin Luther King's uh, funeral. He knew him pretty darn well, but he only knew him in the last year of his life. Uh, I met uh, Dr. Pepper in, in uh, New York, and, and he kind of not blamed himself, but he said that what had happened, he thought, was when, when King became dangerous was after Pepper had showed him images of what was going on in, in uh, the war in Vietnam, that that really politicized King. Yes. And when he started speaking out against the war in Vietnam, yes. that was basically the nail in his coffin. Did you talk about that? Yes, absolutely. That's what he said. Exactly what you said, that, uh, that he feels that's the main reason that uh, he was killed because all the, uh, the military-industrial complex wanted the Vietnam War, and he, he felt sad because he was the one who inspired Dr. King to um, 
to speak out against the Vietnam War. I think it was a famous speech Dr. King made at the Riverside Church in Manhattan. He said, I believe the U.S. government to be the worst purveyor of violence on the face of the earth. And then right after that, he started protesting the Vietnam War. Pepper said that when he first met him, he showed him uh, pictures, Dr. King pictures of um, the, what was happening to Vietnam children as a result of the U.S. bombings. And, you know, the children were being killed and massacred. And uh, Dr. King actually started crying uh, right there when he saw those pictures. Then that's when he decided he was going to uh, uh, protest the Vietnam War. And that, in all likelihood, in Pepper's view, uh, caused his assassination. What did uh, Bill Pepper tell you about his first meeting with James Earl Ray, the supposed gunman? He said that he uh, he grilled him for five hours. That he had a uh, Reverend Ralph Abernathy, Dr. King's uh, associate, was there, and he had a body language expert from Harvard there, and he grilled him. <laughs> he grilled him for five hours, and they all concluded there's no way that this guy uh, could have done it. He was a, had a very docile, peaceful uh, personality, and they all concluded that uh, there's no way this guy shot Dr. King. So, what did what did Pepper talk to you uh, uh, about evidence about the about the FBI's involvement? Um, let me see. Uh, you know, I don't think he talked about FBI. He talked about military intelligence. He actually interviewed some guys who worked for Army intelligence. And they told them that they were in Memphis, April 4th, 1968, with orders to shoot Dr. King. Um, and uh, as far as the FBI, the FBI had a counter pro program. This was a program to, um, to discredit Dr. King. And that's about as much evidence there. He talked to me more about Army intelligence being involved. And that these guys confessed to him that he was involved. I don't know if he talked so much about FBI to me. Did he talk to you about how they would how they used the mob or or you know local mob mobsters or even the local police to do their dirty work? Yes, yes, he said that. Yes, um, that's actually who uh, there was a mobster there, and uh, somebody walked in. He owned a grocery store, and somebody walked in there about an hour before the assassination. The guy heard this mobster saying, "Shoot the son of a bitch when he comes out on the balcony," and then also the police seemed to be a part of it. Yes, that's what Pepper believes. Um, ultimately, you know, it's, he believes, you know, it's U.S. intelligence was manipulating the police and the mafia. And I, I don't think that's something new. I mean, they tried to use uh, the mafia to kill uh, Fidel Castro. And uh, I think that's happened in other cases also. And we should point out that uh, in, the, in the interview, you asked him directly whether he knows who fired the fatal shot from the bushes. He re- Did he reveal that yes, to you? Yes. He, he um he didn't reveal it to me, but he said it was in his new book. I forget what his new book was. His old book was Act of State. Oh, whatever his new book is on the uh, on the uh, assassination, he said it's revealed in there who, who took the shot. And what about the involvement of uh, this gentleman, Lloyd Jowers, who was, uh, I believe, uh, named in the civil trial uh, yes. in uh, in the late 90s? Uh, yes. Lloyd yeah. Jowers and other and other conspirators. Who was Lloyd Jowers? He was just a guy. I think he got brought in because he knew the police, and also he owned a restaurant, a grill, which is directly behind the uh, Lorraine Motel where King got shot. And so I guess they needed him because he 
because apparently uh, that was a good place to hide the gun because somebody said that right after King got shot, some woman who knew Lord Jowers saw him run into the back of the restaurant with a, gun, with a rifle right after the shot and then hide it under the counter. But Pepper says he didn't take the shot. He took it from the assassin. I think Jowers had connections to corrupt policemen. And he was getting paid off by the mafia, and so he, he had a place from where they could make a good shot from. So that's how he, he got brought in. We should point out that uh, James Earl Ray was essentially exonerated in the, the civil trial in uh, the late uh, 1990s. When we'll come back, we'll we'll talk about uh, 9-11, of course, uh, uh, regarding uh, Professor David Ray Griffin. You spoke to him, and we'll talk about uh, these uh, voting uh, machines, uh, black well, voting machines. Thank you. Thank more, you. Of my, more of my conversation with Douglas Sirgnano, author of American Conspiracies and Cover-Ups. Don't go away. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, before we get back to uh, more of our discussion with Douglas Sirgnano on American Conspiracies and Cover-Ups, and we'll talk about Dr. Ray Griffin in uh, just a moment. But first, let's take a quick call, and we have Michael from Newmarket. Yeah. Michael, hello, uh, welcome. Uh, uh, yeah. Hello, Richard, and hello. Hi there. Uh, Ray Griffin, or I guess you're... No, 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 we're speaking, we're speaking with Douglas Sirignano. Oh, okay. Hello. So, I want to talk about what you guys were talking about earlier on, about, uh, you know, how the media controls everything. It seems to me that mainstream media on TV, <clears throat> the news anchor people, are mostly to the left. But when you come to Fox, they seem to want to exonerate Donald Trump. Now on the radio, you note that most of the of the talk show hosts are conservative. Let's say Rush Limbaugh, Bill Cunningham, the Savage and all those people. So the conservatives are uh you know, run the talk shows. Well, yeah, talk shows are, are different because they're paid to give their opinions, whereas, uh, as you mentioned, journalists are are not supposed to uh, opine. Uh, I will say one thing about, <clears throat> excuse me, about about Fox, though, is uh, uh, since Rupert Murdoch's uh, children uh, took over, his sons, uh, they've been they've been changing that network network quite a bit. And it, particularly in the daytime, if you watch, uh, there's definitely more of a liberal bent. But then you're right. In the evening, you've got Laura Ingram, you've got Sean Hannity. They're certainly, again, though, they're, 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 um, they're paid to uh, bloviate, if you will. Uh, and they are, they're definitely uh, more on the right. But I read an interesting statistic. And again, these are American stats. But 97%, I'm sorry, 93% uh, of uh, working journalists in the United States are registered Democrats, 93% wow. and uh, 7% Republicans. So that's the three main networks then, ABC, uh, CNN, CBS, whatever. Well, it's not just the, na- the mainstream met- networks. It seems to be just about all working journalists. Now, that may have just been for television and radio, but I'm not I'm not 100% sure. Anyway, uh, Michael, thank you for that. Did you want to weigh in on that uh, that, that comment, Douglas? I'll just say... Well, that was mainly it. I don't know, you know enough about, let's say... Okay, know, I'll get Douglas to respond. Luther King okay. or any of that. All right, I'll get Douglas to respond to what you, what you were, were asking. Go ahead, Douglas. 
that's interesting what you said, Richard. Um, that ninety three percent are are liberals. My God, and then the registered well, Democrats, I, right? I think we should uh, listen to the radio more than I think, and hopefully people are looking on the internet more too. I think maybe the mainstream media is uh, is dying because it seems like it is too uh, 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 intent on putting out the leftist. Uh, Maybe propaganda, even if it's true or not. So maybe more people are going to uh, Drudge.com and Breitbart.com so to get a more balanced view of things. So that would be good. Uh, you, you sat down with Professor David Ray Griffin to talk about 9-11. And um, I know one of the big questions you had for him was about the fact that you have this incredibly efficient air force in the United States, and, and yet... Uh, you know, those planes were allowed to, you know, to fly around 30, 35, 40 minutes without being intercepted. Uh, did, yeah. did Griffin have an explanation for that? Um, he said it was pretty complicated. And he said that you should look at his book, um, one of his books that gives a more uh, detailed explanation of it. Uh, but the bottom line was that the uh, Air Force did have enough time to intercept the plane. He didn't give me a detailed answer. He said, you have to look in one of my books. I forget. Uh, I think debunk, debunking, uh, debunking a nine eleven debunking. I think that's the one where he gives a right, detailed right. explanation on that. You also ask him about all the the fact that there were so many firsts on nine eleven, and that all of these firsts, you know, that never happened before, but it happened on nine eleven, and that they're yes. suspicious. Just walk us through some of those, if you could. Um, I think the first is uh, a building has never collapsed. Due to a fire, it's never happened before. Buildings, they can withstand uh, uh, the the heat from jet fuel. Uh, doesn't cause a building to collapse. Buildings only collapse through controlled demolition. Another thing, the first was they didn't find the black box from the jets. Is also uh, awfully suspicious. I think you know the black box is indestructible, and it shows you what happened, uh, how, how the plane crashed, and they did not find the black box from the uh, planes that hit into the World Trade Center. Those are two that I remember. Uh, those are pretty big ones, I think. Oh, I, I would say for sure, for sure. Uh, now, I've talked about this uh, previously but uh, with other uh, guests, but I'd like you to tell me what Griffin said about all of these witnesses uh, that came forward. People always say, you know, if it was a conspiracy, where are the whistleblowers? But a number of people have come forward to talk about bombs going off in the basement of uh, yeah. either the North or South Tower and also Building 7. Uh, talk to yeah. me about that. Oh, why aren't there more whistleblowers, you mean? Well, no, the fact that you know a number of people have come forward to talk about bombs going off in the basement yeah. before the planes hit the building. Oh, yeah, I did talk to him about that. There was a guy, uh, William Rodriguez, who's a janitor in the uh, uh, World Trade Center, and he said, a number of people saw uh, bombs going off in the basement of the building, and he, he testified to the 9-11 Commission. He told them that, but they didn't include that in the official report. And uh, then there was two guys that got stuck in the uh, World Trade Center number 7. They got stuck on, like, the 8th floor. Uh, they, they were up there, and then some bombs went off under them, and they couldn't get down. Um, they couldn't get down because the elevator shaft was bombed out. This was before... The building collapsed, and then when they got down into the uh, into the lobby, they saw the whole lobby had been bombed out, and there was dead people lying there. These these guys testified to this. They worked for the New York City government for Mayor Giuliani, 
one of them was eventually killed suspiciously. And uh, so, yeah, there were people, and there's a bunch of firemen and policemen who heard bombs going off that day, you know? I mean, it seems so obvious that uh, bombs were going off, and, you know, it's a mystery why the mainstream media doesn't do a report on that. It just makes you think the conspiracy theory is right, that the mainstream media is controlled, is controlled, you know? All right. Well, speaking of black boxes, we'll talk about voting machines, uh, black box voting. When we come back, more of my conversation with Douglas Sirignano, American conspiracies and cover ups. Stay with us. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air. And The Garden Show.